hearing about, I think it was around five o'clock, my dog wanted outside and I whimpered and whined myself because he's the one I got to keep on a leash. So it means I've got to go outside with him. So I'm outside, I'm walking down the steps. It's not quite light yet. And the most beautiful sounds hit my ears. I have a lot of trees and it was loud. It was just so loud and I thought, those birds are singing just for the joy of being alive. And I thought about uh, him saying, if we don't praise him, the rocks will cry out. And I thought, he, the birds are praising him every morning just for the pure joy of being alive. And that last verse, rejoice, rejoice, O Christian, lift up your voice and sing eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ, the King. And uh, I kind of feel ashamed that I whined because I had to get up and, and walk outside just to be entertained by God's beautiful creation and the creatures who praise him just for the joy of being alive when this is me. This is me that he means. The hope of all who seek him, the help of all who find. None other is so loving, so good and kind. I just want to praise him for being alive and for him living within me. Anybody else have anything to share with us this morning? I've had this topic on my uh, heart and mind for a couple weeks now. Um, a few weeks ago, we were traveling on a very short trip with some close friends of ours, and um, we were in a, in a van with a group of other people and going to a destination and began to have a, a conversation with one of the gentlemen who was on there, and he was um, talking about his faith, and it, it struck me as really pe peculiar and an and I haven't been able to forget it, and uh, I let my really good friend um, Paul uh, speak with him because he had more experience in the topic than I did. And Paul came one night and spoke with us, been, been here a few times to worship with us. Um, the gentleman was talking about being a, a Catholic. And I'm not going to try and be very hard-hitting on Catholics, but I thought it was very interesting what he had to say. was He was talking about his grandmother, and his grandmother had passed away some time ago. And he continued to go uh, to church so he could pray for her because just in case she wasn't pure enough and living when she was alive that somehow she would make it to heaven later on. And he tithes on her behalf to hopefully get her over the line into heaven. And I really let, uh, let my friend Paul really do a lot of the, the speaking with her because he grew up Catholic and could very easily explain uh, things. And I don't know that we made a lot of headway, but it really it kind of saddened me. And so I want to talk just for a minute 
today about what it takes to get to heaven. Because there's a lot of misconceptions about this. And it's not just Catholics. I'm not, this isn't an anti-Catholic sermon. This is a, a sermon that I hope we can address some, some really common beliefs that many people hold today. Some of them hold them very sincerely. This gentleman had a very sincere belief in these things. Others, I think, just hold these beliefs somewhat flippantly. And so I just want to talk about a few of those uh, today. But to do that, I just want to start by reminding us of what is vitally important for us to understand is that sin, the things that we do that are contrary to what God tells us to do, is what separates us from Him. And in the beginning, it was not supposed to be this way. It was not designed to be this way. If you recall in the beginning when Adam and Eve were created and in the garden, they walked with God. They had a relationship with Him. They communed with Him. He knew them. They knew Him. And this was a daily occurrence, this this, uh, relationship that they had with God. And when Adam sinned, when he took the fruit that he was not supposed to, and sin uh, being the wrong thing, the one commandment he was not supposed to do was to eat of that fruit. When he did that and sin entered the world, it made a separation between God and man. And this separation has continued until today and will continue until the very end. And what that means is that we can no longer be in those who are sinful, as in those who commit things and do things that God tells us not to do. We cannot be with Him as it was designed for us to be. We are born into sin. We are born dead. We are born into slavery. All of ways the Scriptures describe our current state. And because of being born into sin and separated from God... We continue to do that throughout our entire lives. We continue to do things we ought not to do. We continue to fail to do the things we ought to do. And it just widens this gap that we have between a God who loves us and desperately wants to have a relationship with us and us who do the wrong things. And so we cannot have fellowship with God. But even worse than that, not only can we not have fellowship with God while we are here, we will be eternally separated from Him and punished at a later time, whenever your time is. And the Scripture is very clear on this, that those who die, who leave this earthly life without that relationship restored unto God, will be punished eternally Forever in hell. Forever. Like, think about that. Just just spend a few seconds and think about how long eternity is. We can't. We don't even understand what that means. But the reality is, those of us who have been saved, who have been reunited with Christ, will spend eternity with Him in heaven. Those of us who have been forgiven, and those who have not, will be eternally punished and have complete separation from Him. And so this comes uh, to this concept that we see both in the Scripture, and is very common today, where we say that you must be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the separation from God. Saved from yourselves who are doing the things that you ought not to do. And saved for a relationship with Christ. And so we often use these phrases sometimes. What's it like to be saved or talk about being saved? We don't talk about what we're being saved from or being saved for. Now we would understand this if it was a little more 
uh, plain to us. If I was to uh, run out in front of a moving car that you didn't see coming and push you out of the way, you would understand that I saved you from being run over. But because we live our lives and we're so used to them, we don't always understand that when we are saved spiritually, we are saved from eternal destruction and saved for a relationship with God. And if any of you have ever had your life saved by someone else or been through a traumatic experience, you yourselves might wonder, okay, now what am I here for? Why am I still here? And we should ask ourselves the same question when we are spiritually saved, why are we still here? What are we supposed to be doing? And so that's the intro to this, that I want to talk about some things that people trust in or believe in, whether sincerely or just casually, that will not help you get saved. The first one is our heritage and history. It doesn't matter whether you belong to a Baptist denomination or not whether you are related to the person whose namesake this building and ground is named after, whatever heritage you think you have, whether your parents were really good people, whether they were themselves saved or Christian uh, folks, it doesn't matter one bit because salvation unto the Lord is only between you and God. It has nothing to do with anything else. Matthew 3 and 9 The Pharisees and Sadducees tried to claim, well, we have Abraham as our forefather, therefore we must be something special. And Christ was very clear to say, it doesn't matter whether you have Abraham as your father, it doesn't matter your history, it doesn't matter your pedigree, it doesn't matter who your family is or where you come from. The reality is being saved is a one-on-one spiritual relationship. And so if you're trusting on who you're related to, or your status, or your fame, or your history, or anything like that, you are trusting in vain. We cannot trust on progress. Now, what do I mean by this? Let me just pause here and say, I've heard this over and over again, and I think it's very true. I think that our, what we don't understand in our culture today is all of us have an internal drive to worship something. It's inborn in who we are, and what we see when we look around society is we all look for something that we want to worship. Sometimes we worship celebrities. Sometimes we worship jobs or work or money or fill in the blank. Sometimes people worship progress. see a lot of slogans about that when it comes to election time, don't we? But progress will not save you either. You can say, well, we're far more advanced as a culture and a society than we were before, although in some ways you could question that, but let's just assume for a minute that we are far more advanced and more knowledgeable than we were a hundred or a thousand years ago. That progress doesn't bring us any closer to God. In fact, I would stand here before today and tell you that I think the progress that society has made probably takes us further away from God because we can entertain ourselves and never think about Him. We never have to stop for a moment to think about where our food comes from because it just shows up. And so progress isn't going to get you closer to God. We see several times in the scripture we're learned about, we're taught about this. 2 Timothy 3, 7, we're reminded that some people are ever learning, ever progressing, but never growing closer to God. We see in Acts 17 that the people at Mars Hill, all they wanted to do was clam around to hear something new. Just wanted to hear something new. Progress, new things, doesn't save you. 
Some people will trust in politics. This can be very dangerous. 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 20 gives us this story where we see that God, again, the original uh, goal was for God to be one-on-one our God. God went and drew the Israelites out of bondage, out of slavery, to set them up to be a people unto themselves, to have God live in their very midst in a tabernacle. And eventually they didn't like that, and they went and said, we want you to make us a king like all the other nations. How foolish is that? How foolish you had the very embodied presence of God living in your camp, and you say, you know what, but everyone else has a king, and we'd like one of those. And Samuel warned them, he's going to make slaves out of you, going to take the best of your fields, he's going to tax you, hello, he's going to make you do things you don't want to do, he's going to put all kinds of restrictions on you, he's going to take your sons to war and your daughters to make them handmaids, all these horrible things will happen because we have a king, and the people said, nah, it doesn't matter, we want one anyway, and they got what they wanted. So you can trust in politics all you want to be your savior, but you know how far it's going to take you? Absolutely nowhere can't trust in politics. What about church? Surely that matters, right? I'm a member of a church. The reality is membership doesn't get you to heaven and it doesn't restore your relationship to God. Now, membership's very, very important. It's vitally important. It really is. It's not something that we should be trifling with. But understand that being a member, having your name on this church's role or any other church's role does not get you into heaven and it does not restore the divided relationship that you have with God. Christ made this abundantly clear as he was walking through Israel. I'm sorry, through Jerusalem. A couple of his disciples were commenting on how beautiful this building was. Of course, it was a temple, but we'll transfer it today to church. And this idea that this temple is amazing and beautiful. And Christ warned them, he said, not one stone will be left on top of another. And sure enough, about 70, 80 years later, that happened. The temple was destroyed. It no longer exists. The only thing that exists is a small portion of the foundation which is the Wailing Wall where the Jews go today to pray because that's all that's left because Christ's prediction came through. It doesn't matter the building or even the group of people that you associate yourself with. That will not get you to heaven. What about being really smart, wisdom and knowledge and intelligence and things like this? Well, the scriptures clearly teach us the actual opposite of that. Ecclesiastes 1, 16 through 18, which is not my favorite verse, says, For much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. See, the reality is exactly opposite of what you think. You can grow in knowledge and wisdom, and actually ends up kind of hurting you in some ways. You can think you're really smart. Some of the most brilliant people in the world who don't know God will not get to go to heaven, no matter how smart they are, no matter how wise they are, no matter how knowledgeable they are, no matter how much time they've put into study, no matter how many letters are behind their name, how many degrees they have, it doesn't matter one bit. It does not restore the relationship between you and God. Well, let's get more specific. What about baptism? Now, I should probably spend a whole couple of Sundays talking about this, but I'm going to very briefly run over this. Baptism does not save you. Full stop. I'll say it again. Baptism does not save you. 
We must stand on this principle because it is very clearly in Scripture over and over again. We not only have examples of people who are saved and never baptized and indicate that they're going to heaven, we also have Scripture that clearly says all we have to do is put our faith in Him. There is no physical work that I must do or rely on someone else to do for me to earn my salvation. Period. Titus 3, 5 says, He saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. It's the mercy that God gives me that saves me, not my works of righteousness, not me doing a good thing. And so, yes, we should look back fondly and have good memories of the times that we are baptized. And yes, we should be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, after we are saved, because it is what Christ tells us to do, but it does not lead to salvation. But how many times have you heard people talk about that? Do you know the Lord? Are you saved? Oh, I was baptized. Well, good. Because if that's what you're putting your faith in, you just got wet. The point is to know Christ, and I'll get to that in a minute. What about a really sad phrase? You ask somebody if they know the Lord or if they're going to go to heaven. I hope so. I hope so. You've probably heard that before. Now, I want to be very careful here because there is a spiritual hope that is right. There is a hope that comes from confidence that is produced by faith. So we know, and I'm going to spoil the end here, we know that salvation comes by grace and our faith in Jesus Christ. And that produces a spiritual hope for us. I am hopeful, not as in I hope I get this for Christmas, but I'm hopeful as in I'm looking ahead unto my reward because I know that by faith I have received it. Now, that's not the type of hope I'm talking about. I'm talking about the flippant hope where people are like, well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Because many, many, many people will tell you, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. hope so. It's a dangerous place to be because just having mere hope that you get to go isn't going to make it happen. What about following the law or being really good? This one's really talked about a lot. <clears throat> Mark ten eighteen, No one is good but one, and that is God. The reality is this. Many people believe this today, that if you do enough good things to outweigh all the bad things, that somehow God will look at you and there's like this balance system. Of, well, you did good. You did really well. But the reality is this. None of us do enough good to ever outweigh the bad because God judges our thoughts and our intents and our hearts and our actions. And so even if somehow you could say, well, I didn't produce a lot of bad actions today, I guarantee your mind did. And God says that's the same thing. The reality is none of us out are good. None of us will ever be good enough to earn our way into heaven. And when you think that you can, you are wrong. You cannot be pure enough, as I mentioned in the intro. Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned, singular, and come short of of the glory of God. You sin once in your life and you fall short of a perfect standard. And that's it. So it doesn't matter how good or pure you think you are, how nice you are, it doesn't get you into heaven. 
Let me try and go quickly through the end here. Works. Works will not get you there either. It doesn't matter how much you work to do good things for other people. It won't get you there. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So again, these kind of tie in a few of the things we've talked about. You can hear people say, well, I hope that I'm there, or I I hope that I'm good enough, or I'm going to do lots of good things to try and outweigh the bad. It doesn't matter at all. You can give away all your money, you can spend all your time, but if you don't know God, if you haven't been saved, it doesn't outdo the way that you were born into sin, and it doesn't outdo the sin that you did after you've been born. What about just saying a prayer? This is one that really bothers me. You know, we've talked about Satan masquerading as an angel of light. That's in the scripture. I think this is one of the ways that he's fooled maybe close to millions of people. This idea that there's a series of 10, 15, 25, 30 special words, that if you just say this, you're saved, I think is an out-and-out lie of the devil. I guarantee you this, everyone who's ever been saved was saved while they were praying. But the prayer is not what results in salvation. You can pray to God all you want to and never actually be saved. You can say this line, the sinner's prayer, whatever you want to call it, over and over again, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you will be saved. Now, are some people saved doing that? I won't deny it. Yes, sure. But the reality is this. Just simply saying a prayer doesn't make you a Christian. It can make you a Muslim, just in case you want to compare the two. That's how you become a Muslim. You repeat this line a couple of times and you're good to go. It doesn't work that way. And anytime you see that preached or taught or promoted, disregard it entirely. We also don't get a second chance. I think we think this will happen. Well, I'll go through life. I'll do some things good and maybe I don't quite make the balance. Maybe I'm not quite good enough. Maybe I didn't do these things and... Somehow I'll get a second chance when it's all over. The reality is there is no second chance. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And if you are found wanting, if you have not been saved when you die, you don't get a do-over. That's it. Eternity rests on how you live today, on whether you know God today. There's a lot of other things we could cover. Confessions to a priest. That's not in here anywhere. Just clear that up. What about tithing? You should tithe. Scripture seems to say that. It's not what saves you. What about praying for those who are dead? Well, again, you get one chance, and after that it's done. So if you haven't been saved by the time you die, you can pray for those people, but I don't know to what end because it won't change anything. What about church attendance? Why wouldn't it be nice if I told you if you came three Sundays out of the month? It doesn't work that way. You could come every single day, and it does absolutely nothing for you. There is nothing that can save you except for the blood of Jesus Christ. See, it's not works. 
It's not repeating a phrase. It's not praying. It's not coming to church. It's not who your family is. It's not being baptized. It's not having the right political views. It's not being progressive. It's not knowing wisdom and knowledge. It's not being conservative. It's not any of that other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. End of story. There is nothing that will save you except for his blood. Now, while you chew on that for a minute, I want to read Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to start with verse 11 and read through 10, verse 14. Because here we see the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to tell us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and help us understand why it is this way. Why sacrifices of animals were required at the beginning. We go all the way back to the beginning when the first Adam sinned. There was an animal that had to be sacrificed to cover them. All the way up until Jesus Christ, who was the final sacrifice, who once and for all gave his life for me. And so listen and read along if you want to. I'm going to read. I'm not going to pause at the chapter change. I'm going to just keep right on reading. Hebrews begin chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead, works to serve a living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised external inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with rites, but with heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are a copy of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood not of his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, 
So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleaned, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, in burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time until enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those that are being sanctified." Now, you may have listened to what I just said and then listened to this passage and still be a little confused. And you know what? That's okay. We are trying to unpack rules and cultures from thousands of years ago and understand how they modeled what would happen and did happen with Jesus Christ. You see, when sin entered the world, the only way to pay the penalty for sin was a sacrifice. That means it costs you something. And so the scripture set up in the Old Testament and into the New until Christ arrived, a system of sacrificing animals to cover temporarily the guilt of the people. And this was necessary to do on a repeated basis and in certain formats and in certain ways and at certain times of the years to remind us of how sinful we are. But the reality is that when Christ came, being the perfect person having no sin, being the perfect sacrifice, and he willingly died on our behalf, his perfect sacrifice, his blood cleanses us from all sins. And unlike the animal sacrifices that had to be repeated over and over and over again, because Christ is perfect, he could do it once, raise from the dead, sit down victorious at the right hand of God, waiting to come back and get us. And when we put our faith in him, his blood, as I told the children this morning, covers all of our sins. And there is nothing else that can be done. It is not baptism. It is not animal sacrifice. It is not church membership. It's not attendance. It's not doing good things. It is only our faith and the grace that he gave to sacrifice himself on our behalf. We must stand on this. This is what the scripture clearly says. And this is what the world desperately needs to hear. Because if you don't know this, you don't know the gospel. 
If you don't understand this and you think that one of these other ways or any other way is going to get you into heaven, is going to restore that relationship with God, you are in for a shock. It is our job, it is our duty to share the gospel, the good news about how Christ paid for our sins. Christ is the pure sacrifice. He purifies our conscience from our dead works. He wakes us up. We become new creatures. We become alive for the first time when we have faith in him. And without his shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Christ paid our debt. I don't have to go and pay money to a church to pay for someone else's debt to hopefully get them into heaven. I don't have to work to get into heaven. I don't have to do good things on behalf of someone else to try and get them there. The only thing that works is the blood of Jesus Christ and my faith in it. Christ has paid our debt once and for all. We no longer sacrifice animals. Why? Because Christ paid our debt. Verse 10 tells us we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ. And the conclusion in verse 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So why did I cover this today? To help us realize. To help us realize when we hear an untruth, we should address it. Next time someone says, well, I hope I go to heaven. Tell them they can know because you can. Next time someone says, well, I hope I've done enough good to outweigh the bad. Look them straight in the eye and tell them the really horrible news. That's impossible. You cannot do enough good to outweigh the bad. Next time someone says, well, I repeated this prayer at church camp or I signed this card or I shook a preacher's hand, say, well, there better be more to it than that because there has to be. Next time someone tells you anything on any of these, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. Tell them I have a confident hope based on my faith, not a hope that I have a nice day tomorrow. Next time someone talks about works or prayers or second chances or any of this or anything else that I didn't mention, you remind them and tell them there is one way to God, and that is through the shed blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. End of story. And until you have put your faith in him, you have gone absolutely nowhere. And all the money you've given, all the prayers you've said, all the nice things you've done are absolute rubbish. A used bloody cloth is what the scripture calls it, just to be thrown away. It's all it accounts to. You spend your entire life doing the wrong thing, and it doesn't help. So this is it. This is the conclusion of all of it. Nothing else is needed but the blood of Jesus Christ. It was his grace to give it to us. In other words, we didn't earn it. He gave it to us freely. He sacrificed himself freely for us, his blood. And it's our faith to believe unto salvation. Nothing else you can do will save you from this separation or restore you to God. So what does this faith that I've mentioned mean? It's more than just a belief. I almost put that down as well, and I decided not to. There are lots of people who, watch me, quote, believe in God. Yeah, I believe God's up there somewhere. That's not a saving belief. 
The scriptures tell us even the demons believe in God and are fearful of him. The belief that we're talking about, the faith that we're talking about, is a personal saving knowledge of God. That time in your life when you are convicted by your sins, as in the Holy Spirit speaks to you and whispers and reminds you of all the things that you've done that are wrong, all the things that you're currently doing that are wrong, that you are convicted for what you've done, not just I feel a little sorry, but you're convicted in it and you truly believe from every fiber that you have in who Jesus is and what he did for you. And you ask for forgiveness and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the spirit forgives you and you have a joy unspeakable and you become a new creature and you become alive for the first time to him. That is when you are saved, that you are restored to God now and forever. And if you do not know that, then you are lost and are not saved. And if you don't make it home today, your eternal reward is eternal punishment. This is a very serious and weighty matter. It's too serious for us to be flippant about it or to allow others to be flippant about it. Well, I hope I get to go to heaven. Or I got my ticket punched years ago. I've not heard many people say that who I thought were genuinely saved. It's not something you do and act like it never happened. You got it done, taken care of. I can move on with my life. I don't know the state of your soul. I can't look inside of you and tell you. God can, God will, and God does. And if he is dealing with you today, if he is impressioning to you today, I don't know about this, then you need to pray and talk with him. And you need to reveal to him your questions, your doubt, your worry, your concern. Ask him to make it clear in your life. I can certainly lead you to scripture. I can read scripture to you. I can help to explain it. But again, add this to the list. I can't save you. doesn't work that way. If I had that power, I'd just save everybody. But if Christ didn't do that, I certainly can't do it either. Because I'm just a man, a sinner saved by the grace of God and the shed blood of his son, like the rest of us. I could just simply point you back to him, point you to the cross. So as we have a song, an invitation, I want you to sincerely consider, are you trusting in anything else other than the blood? Because we're going to sing 204. There is nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ that will save you from absolute certain separation and absolute certain punishment. Your faith in him is what is required and what is necessary to know him.